how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Revelation Part 5, The Last Millennium. Well, we're getting to the good news now, and the clouds are beginning to roll away and the sun's beginning to shine again. We've seen that the immediate future looks pretty grim, but the ultimate future looks bright. And this is how Christian hope operates. It doesn't look at the immediate future. Christian hope is fixed on the ultimate future, how it will all turn out in the end. That's why there's far more in the New Testament about what happens to you when Jesus comes back than about what happens to you when you die. Because the Christian hope is fixed at the uh, coming again of Christ rather than at the moment of death. Well now, Revelation as a book is made up of two things, visions and voices. And John is very careful to write down the difference. He says, I heard and then I saw. I heard voices, I saw visions. And towards the end of the book, we have seven visions after a lot of herds and before another lot. All the way through that Babylon section, it's, I heard. I heard an angel cry, Babylon is fallen. I heard the voices of angels singing like the sound of many waters. I heard, I heard. And then suddenly, I saw, I saw, I saw seven times. And then after seven, I saw, it goes back to, and I heard a great voice say, behold, I make all things new. Now, unfortunately, a very dangerous and damaging thing has happened to our Bibles. Two bishops did the damage. One divided our Bible into chapters and the other divided it into verses and numbered them. Which other book do you ever read in which every sentence is numbered? It's crazy when you think of it. And it's turned us into text people instead of context people. For a thousand years, the church had a Bible with no chapter and verse numbers. Did I hear a hallelujah? Because <laughs> oh. people don't want to search the scriptures nowadays, they want to look them up. People often tell me, why don't you put chapter and verse numbers when you talk? Well, I always give you the book of the Bible <laughs> and I leave you to search the scriptures, not to look them up. Otherwise, you don't look at the context. You have to know your Bible much better if you have no chapter and verse numbers. But the damage to Revelation has been enormous in this last section. There are seven clear visions, I saw, I saw, I saw, and they've been split into three different chapters. There are three in chapter 19, three in chapter 20, and one in chapter 21. And since these big f chapter numbers stand out of the page, we tend to split it up. And the big damage that this has done here is that it's enabled people to take chapter 20 by itself and put it before chapter 19. 
And that's what's caused all the debate about amillennial, premillennial, and postmillennial. You must have heard those names. A friend of mine was asked, are you amillennial, premillennial, postmillennial? He said, that is a preposterous question. <laughs> but the modern answer is this. I've asked many people which they are, and they say, I'm panmillennial. And that means I believe everything will pan out all right in the end, whatever. <laughs> but that's an evasion, and that's mishandling the Word of God. And uh, we've got to look at these seven visions in the order in which Christ gave them and not juggle them around. There is only one view about the millennium that takes chapter 20 after chapter 19. All the others say they should be the other way around. And to me that's tampering with the Word of God. But we'll come to that in a moment. Let's look first at the first few of these visions which he saw. We're now right at the end of this age. Babylon has fallen. Now we notice that there are four major bad things or persons at the end of Revelation, four enemies of the human race, namely Satan, Antichrist, the false prophet, and Babylon. And now these four are all dealt with in reverse order. Babylon has now fallen. The next to be dealt with are the false prophet and the Antichrist. And the last to be dealt with is Satan. So these four enemies which have come in in the earlier chapters are now to be pushed out again, but in reverse order. And at the beginning of chapter 19, Babylon has gone, and uh, believers are singing the Hallelujah Chorus, and an angel says the time has come for the marriage. But the bridegroom isn't around. And so the first vision is actually of the bridegroom coming. It is a vision of Jesus coming again. This time he's not riding a donkey, he's not coming in peace, he's riding a horse which means coming in war, coming in aggression, coming to fight. He's coming to rid the world of evil, coming to put it right. So he rides a horse this time. If you only think of Jesus on a donkey, that's only half the picture. The other half, Jesus rides on a horse. He's coming with blood-drenched robes, and they're not his own blood. It's the blood of his enemies. He's coming in war. And he's got a title on him. King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I think I've got a, a picture here which actually was painted by a Jew. And here is the white horse, and in Hebrew, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and grapes at the bottom because he is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. Uh, that's out of Revelation as well that he's coming to tread the grapes and make people drink the wine of his wrath. The word cup in Scripture, when it's used metaphorically, always refers to God's anger or wrath. That's why Jesus prayed in Gethsemane, Father, if it be possible, take this cup. Jesus was going to be on the receiving end of God's anger and wrath for all the sins of the world, and he didn't want to drink that cup. At the end of Revelation it says, those who still defy God will have to drink that cup. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. You've sung it. 
haven't you? It's the, one of the great American songs from the Civil War. Well, now that's vision number one. We'll put that aside for a moment. King of kings, Lord of lords, but he is also called here the Logos or the Word. And that ties right in with John's Gospel. There are only two books in the Bible where Jesus is called the Logos or the Word. One is John in the first chapter and the other is Revelation here. It's the same person. White horse, blood-stained robe, he's coming to fight evil. And in the creed that many of you recite in church, he shall come again to judge the quick and the dead, the living and the dead. He's coming to put things right. The second vision is an extraordinary one. Angels are inviting birds to come to the Last Supper. But what is the supper? John sees in the vision a field full of corpses, thousands of dead bodies, too many to bury, and they're rotting in the field. And the angel invites the birds of prey, the vultures and other such birds, come, clean up the battlefield for us. Come to the supper the Lord has provided for you. It's an extraordinary vision. The third vision is of the battle which has resulted in this field full of corpses. So there's a slight hiccup there in the order, but the battle, actually this is just the invitation of the angels, the battle which is going to produce those corpses is the last battle of history of this age, the battle of Armageddon. Now that word in Hebrew means the hill of Megiddo. It's a little hill and it's surrounded by a large triangular plain the plain of Israelon or the plain of Yezreel, there is the hill of Megiddo. Many of you will have been to Israel and seen it. And here's the great plain. It is the only flat place in the land of Israel, apart from the plain of Sharon down by the coast, by the Mediterranean. This is the only break in the hills that go vertically north to south, right through the promised land. There's only one real place to go through and that's the plain of Megiddo, and here lies the crossroads of the world. The road from, let's get it right, to you. The road from Europe to Arabia crosses the road from Asia to Africa right there at the foot of the hill of Megiddo. It is the very crossroads of the world and that's why this area is Galilee and it's called Galilee of the Nations because all the nations used to go through that crossroads. All the big battles were fought there. Winston Churchill sent a group of British army officers out to survey the area because he believed that the Italians pressing through Africa and the Germans coming down through Crete would trap the British army in the crossroads of the world at Megiddo. Actually, the Italians were stopped at Alamein and the Germans didn't get to the uh, Holy Land, but Churchill knew his Bible and he thought the Battle of Armageddon would be the end of World War II. He was right about the place, but wrong about the timing. This is where the King Josiah was killed by Pharaoh. This is where Saul and Jonathan were killed by the Philistines. It is a battlefield because of that crossroads and overlooking the crossroads is the village of Nazareth. Jesus was born overlooking the crossroads of the world at the hill of Megiddo. It is not a surprise therefore that this is where the last great battle will be fought, except that it won't be fought 
a huge army will be gathered by the false prophet and the Antichrist, and they will march heading for Jerusalem. Why? Because Jesus is back. Then why a huge army? Because the first time it only needed a handful of soldiers to arrest him, because by now millions of Christians will be with him because we're meeting him in the air above the Mount of Olives. And if you don't like a noisy meeting, don't come. (laughs) There'll be trumpets blowing and archangels shouting, enough noise to raise the dead, which is exactly what will happen. (laughs) And if you have died before Jesus gets back, don't worry, you get a front seat at at the big meeting because the dead in Christ shall rise first and we shall be there. And so now word will have gone out that Jesus is back and has millions of followers with him altogether. No wonder then that Antichrist and the false prophet will see such a threat to their world government that they will gather this huge army and march for Jerusalem. They will get no further than that crossroads and there will be no fighting. It says Jesus will destroy them with a word. Well, Jesus could kill a fig tree with a word. He can kill an entire army with a word. Here we have Jesus as a mass killer. It's a different Jesus now, isn't it? No, it's the same Jesus. But he did come first time to save these people and to save the whole world. But when the world refuses that, he has to come and deal with the situation. And Jesus, with his word, slays the whole army with the exception of the two leaders. And it says the Antichrist and the false prophet will be thrown into hell alive. They are the first human beings ever to see hell. Nobody's in hell yet. Hell's being prepared for the devil and his angels. Nobody's in hell yet. But they will be the first two human beings to experience that dreadful place. So that's the battle of Armageddon. The kings and the armies will be destroyed by a word, by the Logos, and the beast and the false prophet, the Antichrist and the false prophet, are thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death, a living death, not annihilation. We'll come back to that in a moment. Now comes the big surprise. Satan is not thrown into hell. And from now on, there are many surprises in this series of visions. And the first is the surprise about Satan. He is put in a dungeon. He is seized, chained, bound, locked up and sealed in a pit, which means that he is altogether removed from the earthly scene and it says he will not be able to deceive the nations again. So Satan is now removed. Now here we have a political crisis. The world government has gone. Satan has gone. The Antichrist and the false prophet have gone. This unholy trinity are removed and the world is without any government. Who's going to keep control? Now, of course, this huge army is dead, but there are still many other people living in other nations who haven't been conscripted into that army. Who's going to control them? Who's going to rule the world now? And here comes the big surprise. Jesus is going to rule it and Christians are going to share that reign with him. 
Now, unfortunately, the majority of churches in this country neither believe nor teach what I have just said. But I'm telling you what it says in Revelation 20. And it says that Jesus will reign over the earth for a thousand years. And whether you take that as a round figure or an exact figure, it's a long period. He's coming back to reign. And the Latin for a thousand years is millennium. But strangely, that word is now right back into everybody's vocabulary. It's in almost every magazine and newspaper now. But the church is strangely silent about a much better millennium than the one that begins in the year 2000. The year 2000 is not in God's diary. It has no significance whatever. Jesus' 2000th birthday was in October 1996 and we all missed it. And the year 2000 doesn't correspond to anything in God's thinking. But the world will get a bit excited about it, I guess. But there is a millennium going to start when Jesus gets back, a millennium such as we've longed to see. People are going into 2000 onwards with hopes that it's going to be the best yet and the most wonderful. I tell you, three days after January the 1st, 2000, it'll be the same old world with all the same problems and the celebration will be over and the money will have been spent and we're back to where we were. But when Jesus gets back, that's when the millennium starts. It couldn't be more emphasised here. The figure a thousand years is mentioned six times in Revelation 20. And twice it's not just a thousand years but the thousand years. How many times does God have to say a thing before we believe it? He says it six clear times here that Jesus is going to reign for a thousand years and we are coming back to reign with him. I find most Christians have not even realised that if they die before Jesus gets back, they're going to come back here to this planet Earth and live on it a second time. Of course, we shall need a body again. You don't need a body in heaven, but you do need one to live here. And that's why that's when and that's where we shall get our new resurrection body like Jesus' glorious body, back here. Because we're coming back here to live. We're the only people who will get a second bite at the cherry. We're the only people who will live here a second time. And the banks will be in our hands and the courts will be in our hands. World government will be in our hands. My, we can't even run the church now. I'm pretty serious. We're going to be running the world. Do you remember when some Corinthian Christians took each other to court before an unbelieving judge? They were into litigation and Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said, I hear that you're taking each other to court before an unbelieving judge. How dare you when you are going to judge the nations? If you can't sort problems out within the church now, how are you going to run the world later? That's how Paul argues in Corinthians. See, we are going to be the responsible people. You can grumble as much as you like about John Major, Tony Blair or Paddy Ashdown. You can grumble about the politicians as much as you like, but you're going to take their place. You better get ready for that. It changes your attitude to daily work. Had a man come up to me recently, he said, oh, he said, for the first time I can relate my faith to my job. I said, why? What's your job? He said, I'm responsible for cleaning up the pollution in the rivers of England. And he said, I could never connect that up with my Christian faith, but he said, when Jesus comes back, he's going to need someone to clean up the rivers. 
He said, I want that job. I'm going to learn as much as I can about it now. Jesus is going to need people he can trust with the money of the banks. Going to need people who are faithful, to whom he can say, well done, good and faithful servant, I'll put you in charge of ten cities. Jesus meant what he said when he said that. He's going to run this world the proper way and you're the ones he's going to use to help run it. He promises he who overcomes will rule the nations with a rod of iron and sit with me on my throne. Rule the nations. The rod of iron doesn't mean with cruelty or terror. It means a benevolent dictatorship that you can't bend, that you can't bribe. It means there will be censorship. The television will be entirely in Christian hands. The radio will be entirely in Christian hands. The press will be entirely in Christian hands. Now that's a world you've dreamed of maybe that's going to happen. And some of the things that are going to happen during that thousand years take my breath away. Health will so improve that people dying at a hundred will be regarded as premature. It says boys and girls will play safely in the streets. Isn't that beautiful? It says even the animals will be at peace. The wolf and the lamb will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. You've read all these things in the Bible. Did you ever think they'd happen? Do you believe they will? I tell you they won't before Jesus gets back and gets rid of the devil. Incidentally, the devil is thrown out by an angel. The Lord doesn't bother with him says to an angel, go and kick him out. The ultimate indignity. And he's no longer here. And for a thousand years we have peace. A nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Why? They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. That's engraved on a rock outside the United Nations headquarters in New York, but they've forgotten the first half of the verse. The first half says, when the Lord reigns in Zion, he will settle the disputes between the nations and they shall beat their swords into plowshares. World peace, it's coming when Jesus comes and when he reigns and when you're in charge. My, we should get into training right now. He's going to be looking for men and women of integrity, faithfulness that he can trust, but he's going to reign. And among the saints reigning, John sees in his vision the martyrs, those who've been killed, those who've died for Jesus are now the government. Those who've been rejected by secular governments are now the sacred government of Christ. What a turning of the tables. Can you imagine what it was like when the early Christians were hauled before the Roman authorities and threatened with death to know that one day they'd be sitting where the Roman authorities were sitting? that one day Pilate will be on trial before Jesus, that there's going to be a tremendous reversal and Christians, instead of being the persecuted minority, are going to be the government. My, if we can't govern the church properly now, what's Jesus going to say to us then? We better get in training. But the martyrs, he sees among the saints reigning, this group of the martyrs, those who've died for Jesus, and there they are, they're now in charge. From their own experience of being unjustly treated, they will work with justice and mercy. 
of course that means that there will be a resurrection when Jesus comes back and it's called here the first resurrection and it is only of those who have overcome and remained faithful to Jesus and they are raised from the dead. It says they come to life and there they are sitting with Jesus on his throne, especially those who refused to have the number of the beast on them so that they could, could buy food. Now then comes the greatest surprise. Uh, I'm going to do this in more detail in the next talk, my last talk, but uh, just to run through them quickly. Then he sees in the sixth vision that the rest of mankind are raised from the dead, even from the sea, those who've drowned are raised from the dead and stand before the great white throne to be judged. Now that uh, is the second resurrection and here we are told very clearly that there will not be a general resurrection of all and sundry but two resurrections. Unfortunately the church for the most part today believes in only one, that everybody is raised on the same day but here it is clearly stated, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years are over. And if you study Jesus' teaching, he himself believed in two resurrections. He was discussing one day with the Pharisees the resurrection of the righteous. That is the first resurrection. Even the Pharisees believed in two resurrections, the righteous first, then the wicked, and Jesus agreed with that. The New Testament clearly teaches not a day of general resurrection, though everybody will be raised, the righteous and the wicked, but the righteous are raised to rule in the millennium and the wicked are raised for judgment at the end of that thousand years. And the judgment is based on books, we'll say more in that, on that in the next session. And then the final vision is the new heaven and the new earth, new Jerusalem. Now the point I want to make is this is a series of consecutive visions beginning with the second coming and ending with the new heaven and the new earth. But in between are the two major events of a millennium and a day of judgment. Now almost 100% of the uh, church in England believes in the first event, the return of Christ, the day of judgment and the new heaven and the new earth. It's about this thing in between, this thousand years that there has arisen a colossal argument which has so split people in the church that there's almost an agreement now never to mention it, never to talk about it. And I believe that's risking the curse on revelation of those who take away from what the Lord has said. Here are four major events in these seven visions, the second coming, the millennium, rule of Christ on earth, the day of judgment and the new heaven and the new earth. Why then have people rejected that and even taken this millennial rule and pushed it back here so that it comes before the second coming? And that's what caused all the problems and I'm going to name the man who did it and they call him Saint Augustine. Why they call him Saint I don't know. He messed up the Christian faith no end. And it was from him that the church began to have doubts about this rule of Christ on earth for a thousand years and he's persuaded most of the church, Protestant and Catholic, to drop the idea. 
I want to ask, why on earth then do you think Jesus is coming back? And how long do you think he's coming back for? Two minutes? And why does he bring us all back? If we're just going to whisk back up to heaven, why, don't, why doesn't he leave us up there and come and go again? Get us all up there. There's only one reason, I think, big enough for Jesus to come back here, and that's to reign, to rule, to put this world to rights and demonstrate once and for all what this world can be under the right government and under the rule of God. You're supposed to pray every day, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. How do you think that prayer will be answered? Well, I'm going to go through some of the different ideas on that. Those of you near enough to read this will notice I've missed an important thing out there. Satan released. At the end of the thousand years, he is released again and goes out and deceives the nations again and gathers a mighty army again and marches on Jerusalem with it without any result because we're told that fire from heaven will burn up his whole army. That army has a different name. Armageddon is not the last battle in history, it's the second last. The last one is at the end of the millennium when Satan is released on parole, given a last chance, and he gathers that army and marches on Jerusalem, the city Jesus loves, and he's defeated by fire. Now, what's all that about? I can only share my understanding of why God wants Jesus to rule and why then he allows Satan a last chance to wreck it all, and why Satan deceives the nations again right at the end. I think it's to show before the day of judgment, it's to vindicate God. He's going to divide the human race into two groups, one of whom is wanting and willing to accept life under his rule and the rest who don't want to live under his rule. That's going to divide the human race. God has to demonstrate both possibilities before he can be vindicated as final judge. What he's doing is this. He's proving that sin has nothing to do with economic conditions or environment. It is rebellion. After a thousand years of peace and health and prosperity under Christ, the people still want rid of him. And Satan still goes back to the temptation of the Garden of Eden and says, you decide for yourself, don't let him tell you. It's the original temptation. There are plenty of people who say, if only you put economic conditions right, give people the right environment, sin, vice and crime disappear. Don't you believe it? It's the devil's lie. Even if everything's done for the people, they will still resent. I think they will resent censorship most, not being able to look at things they want to look at. But the devil will step in and as he said to Eve, be your own boss, you decide, take it, and we'll lead that final army. Now let's go back to this whole thing of the millennium. It's not a simple issue and what we talk about might uh, just rub over into the next talk a bit. There are 
a number of different views about this thousand years, which you'll meet in the church. Normally people say there are only three, amillennial, premillennial, postmillennial. Uh, amillennial claims not to believe in the millennium at all. Premillennial believes that the millennium will follow Jesus' return, that he comes pre the millennium and post-millennialism says that this millennium will happen before Jesus comes, he will come after post-millennium. Those are the three normally understood views. The complication is that there are not three views but six. And the added complication is that most of those in this country who call themselves amillennial are not, they're post-millennial. I better explain, hadn't I? There are in fact six views. Very few Bible-believing Christians are amillennial. The amillennial, it should really be non-millennial because a means non, atheist means non-believer in God and they should call themselves non-millennium but actually because most of those who say that this are really this, they use a instead of non but there's a complication. There are two genuine amillennial views. One is utterly sceptical of the whole idea of a thousand years of peace. It's an absurdity to them and they just don't pay any attention to it at all. Mostly liberal Christians think that way. Others treat it as a myth, the sort of people who treat Adam and Eve as a myth. It's a story, it's not true, it's fiction not fact, but it has a message. It's a kind of allegory. Adam and Eve is a kind of allegory of every man, not of one man, and the millennium is a kind of allegory about... It's a story, it doesn't refer to any period of time, it's just telling us that good will triumph, that there will be world peace someday, somehow. Treat it as a myth. Well, Frankly, those, I would guess there are nobody here in either of those two. I'd be worried if there were. But there will be many post-millennials here and a post-millennial takes chapter 20 and says that describes the period before chapter 19. That wrecks the whole series of seven, seven visions of course but that's what they do. And there are, they therefore believe that Christ will return after this thousand years. So what is this thousand years about? Are we in it yet or are we not? And there are two kinds of post-millennial, what I've called spiritual post-millennials, and they say the millennium is a description of the whole church age from the first coming to the second. And we are in the millennium now, undoubtedly. And you say, well, just a minute. Thought the devil was supposed to be out of this world. Who's running the business now? And so they talk not about Satan being banished but Satan being bound. And when you say bound in what way? Well, he can't prevent the church being built but he seems to be able to do a lot of other things. It, it really requires twisting the scripture but they say Jesus is reigning now, he's reigning in heaven, the millennium is not on earth, he's reigning in heaven with the saints who've died and uh, the whole church age is the millennium which of course puts it before chapter 19 and the return of Christ which again is moving scripture around in a crazy way. 
But there is a new form of millennialism, post-millennialism, that is political rather than spiritual and believes that the last thousand years of this age will be the church ruling the world, that the church will establish the kingdom on earth before Christ gets back. And we're not in it yet, but it will come. And though not everybody in the world will be converted, at least the church will have enough Christians to take over world governments. Now this is behind the restoration movement, it's behind what's called reconstruction and dominion theology. It, all sorts of labels are coming, but many of the new fellowships in this country have swallowed this and believe that they're going to build a kingdom on earth. They say, you know, we're marching for Jesus, we're going to take England over in his name, we're going to drive the devil through the channel to France, but we're going to clean up England in the name of Jesus, we're going to rule the nations now. There's a kind of triumphalism which is what I call political post-millennialism. It puts the return of Jesus off for at least another thousand years. But again, I ask, if this is the millennium, it doesn't feel like it and the devil seems pretty active. Well, they say we're not into the thousand years yet. Well, it's going to be a long time. I think it's a triumph of hope over experience that the church is going to take over the nations. A lot of the missionary hymns of the 19th century believe that. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun, but if you read the whole hymn, it's believing that the church in Jesus' name will take the whole world over before he gets back. Well, therefore there are two forms of um, post-millennialism, both of which keep Jesus in heaven for the establishment of the kingdom on earth. Some believe it's a spiritual kingdom, the whole church age is the millennium. Some believe it's the last part of the church age when the church will run the world. The premillennial view says Jesus will come back before the millennium and he will establish it. The kingdom cannot come on earth until the king comes. And there are two forms of that. One is called dispensational. I referred to it earlier when I talked about uh, the brethren teaching and Derby and Schofield and they believe that the millennium will be largely Jewish on earth, that Christians and Jews will never really get it together. The Jews are God's earthly people and the Christians are God's heavenly people and therefore the millennium will largely be earthly and Jewish. That's the dispensational view which concentrates on Israel. The classical premillennial view of the early church, which was undisputed for about 400 years or even 500, the early church was unanimous. They believed that Jesus would come back and establish his world government here for a thousand years. That's the view I've found in Revelation 20 and it's the view that was universally held in the early church. What went wrong? The answer is Augustine found it much too physical an idea, much too earthly an idea. He was more influenced by Greek than Hebrew thinking, trying to write a book called Degreasing the Church which will <laughs> try and point out how this all happened. But the idea that Jesus would come back and reign here and that there'd be people with their new bodies sitting at the same table with people still in their old bodies, he found just too difficult. But actually that's what happened in the resurrection of Jesus. He had his new body and he had breakfast with the disciples who hadn't got their new bodies, what's the problem? But it's all too physical 
for Greek thinking, spiritual and physical, are two separated. And so it was Augustine who laid the foundations for these two post-millennial views, which probably are the majority view in Bible-believing Christians in this country. Well, there it is. Some of you would like to come up afterwards and find out which you are. <laughs> All you need do is work through this questionnaire. A thousand years in Revelation 20, will there be such a period in history? If you say no, you're an amillennial. If you say yes, you're one of these. If you're amillennial, you then have to ask, does it have any meaning at all? If you say no, you're a skeptical amillennial. If you say yes, you're um, a mythological millennial. But I wouldn't think that there were many here who would say that. Most would say it is a period of time, whether exactly a thousand or a long period. Will it be a period in history? Yes. Will it be before or after Christ's return? If you say before, then you are a post-millennial. And then you ask, will it be the whole of the church age or will it be the last thousand years of the church age? If you say the whole, you are a spiritual post-millennial. If you say it will be the last part, you are a political post-millennial. And probably the majority here are somewhere here. I may be wrong. But if you say it will be after Christ's return, you are what we call premillennial. You then ask, will it primarily be a Jewish government or will it be a Christian government? If you say Jewish, you're probably a dispensational premillennial. And if you say it will be a Christian government, you're a classic. Classic because that was the view of the early church. Well, there you are. You can sort it all out. It does make a difference to your practical daily life. Each of these views has a different impact on your motivation in two areas, evangelism and social action. Some of these views kill social action dead. In particular, the dispensational view says, what's the point of trying to make this world better? It kills social action, but it makes evangelism very top priority. Other views change the proportion of motive in that. But people who think this is all an academic discussion need to realize that Jesus wouldn't have told us about this thousand years unless it was going to make a very big difference to us. And I've got to stop there. My time has run out. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.